No, no, no response. Okay. So <laughs> I guess I have to say I agree with you, Matt. <laughs> All right. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by when I will be vaccinated. Are you guys as curious about this as, as I am? Chris, are you, Chris, have you, do you have any special privileges being a doctor? Well, I'm, I'm, no, is the short answer. My wife, however, has received both doses of the vaccine. Has it changed her life? Yes. I will say that when she got her first dose, she was incredibly emotional, in fact, uh, tearful about this. I mean, it was, it was a powerful moment. Yeah. Yeah. For obvious reasons. And she felt fine. And then after she got her second dose, she felt kind of crummy and achy and went to sleep for 12 hours and took a lot of Tylenol. And now she's good to go? And now she's good to go. So she she had some systemic systemic reactions, very common as we know, not particularly rate limiting. She's uh, she's back to back to full of vim and vigor. Fantastic. Well, I'm Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health, and I'm here as always with Dr. Chris Gill. Welcome, Chris. Hey, Matt. From the Department of Global Health. And I am also here with Dr. Jess Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health here at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Jess. Thank you. Nice to be here with both of you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. And as a reminder to all our listeners, if you can head over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning. A lot of interesting stuff going on over there. Check it out for lifelong learning tools and programs. And also a reminder to to rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever your podcast app is. We love those ratings and it helps other people find us. So now onto the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we're going to look at a study on mode of birth and risk of infection related hospitalization in childhood. And then in the second part of our podcast, which is our deep dive segment, we're going to talk about who should be critiquing public health in a pandemic. And then in our final segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we'll get into some things that make us laugh out loud, or Chris will tell us all about Beethoven. I think it was Beethoven. Wasn't it Beethoven that you it told sure us all was. about, Chris? That always makes me laugh out loud. It's yeah. a great story. <laughs> all right, so let's get into it. So segment one, we're going to talk about an article that looked at the impact of mode of delivery on infection-related hospitalization. It was published in PLOS Medicine, and the study was titled Mode of Birth and Risk of Infection-Related Hospitalization in Childhood, a Population Cohort Study of 7.17 Million Births from Four High-Income Countries. A lot of births there. Uh, It was by first author Jessica Miller of the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Victoria, Australia, and a few headlines on this one. So, Eureka Alert says cesarean section born children may face higher risk of infection related hospitalization. The medical news says children born via cesarean section may face increased risk of infection. And drugs.com says risk of infection up for children born by C-section. So Jess, can you start us off by walking us through this study? Sure. And yeah, that was my initial reaction. I was like, wow, that's a, that's a lot of people in this study. It's like 7 million oh, something. A lot of so, babies. A lot of babies being born in this research. So, so anyway, this was an interesting paper. And just to backtrack for 30 seconds, kind of the core hypothesis 
here, the research hypothesis that they're looking to investigate is this idea that vaginal birth exposes the baby to kind of good or healthy, the vaginal microbiota in the birth canal in the process of being born, and that that is protective for various sorts of infection going forward in early life. The idea that the mother's vaginal microflora colonizes the infant and then has positive health effects related to it and, and, and leads to some sort of protection. Um, and there is a good deal of evidence that babies who were born from cesarean section and don't go through the birth canal compared to babies who are born vaginally do have different microbiota. And there's this really interesting, this woman who does really interesting research, I'm sure some of you listening know of her, and if you don't, definitely check her out, Dr. Maria Dominguez-Bello. She's now at Rutgers, and she's done fascinating work looking at the microbiota by birth method. So that's the theory here, kind of looking at this study. These authors were looking at the relationship between mode of birth, comparing cesarean section to vaginal birth, and infections in children younger than five in five high-income countries. They were looking um, in Denmark, Scotland, England, and Austria. This was a medical record cohort study, so the data was being pulled from medical records in these countries, involving more than 7 million births from 1996 to 2015. And their core outcomes were infection-related ICD-9 and 10 codes related to various forms of infection in these young children. They stratified the, the exposure, the cesarean section, as elective or versus emergency cesarean section to see if there was a difference by kind of what preceded the, the C-section. And they used Cox proportional hazard models adjusted for various sorts of factors, including maternal age, maternal SES, gestational age, birth weight, and various maternal comorbid factors that might play into a child's later infection rate and also whether the mom would have a C-section or not. So in their, you know, in the results of this huge study with 7 million births, 23% of the births in these four countries were by C-section. And of, the, of those numbers, about 43% were elective. So the remaining were emergency C-section that were not planned by, um, by the mom or the doctor. Their results indicated that the risk of infection was 10% higher among the children who were born by cesarean section compared to children who were born vaginally. And specifically, higher among the children who were born following elective C-section compared to those who were born following emergency C-section, which I'll come back to in an end, in the, at the end, which is a little bit of an interesting observation. They looked across many different types of infection in these children and found that the risks were highest among respiratory infection and gastrointestinal infection and viral infection. At least the respiratory and gastrointestinal might be consistent with a, a hypothesis having to do with microbiome biota and colonization of microbiota. They also stratified their results by maternal risk, which was classified in a number of different ways, but found no difference in that sort of classification. So their core conclusion here was that cesarean section was associated with increased risk of childhood infection, specifically respiratory and gastrointestinal. So kind of in terms of just briefly strengths of this study, the, the sheer number of births, as we talked about, was a huge strength. This was a mega, mega study. They were using meta-analytic methods involved more than 7 million. The duration of time, they were 
aggregating birth data over an almost 20-year time period, um, the high quality of the birth records and the electronic medical records that were coming from these high-income countries where these data is organized and is available um, was a real strength of this study. And the stratification by the elective and the emergency C-sections and the various maternal factors was also a strength. And one of the interesting things to note was that, you know, in accordance with their hypothesis, they did find association with certain types of infection and not others. And the certain types of infection were consistent with this, as I was saying, kind of were consistent with this microbiota colonization hypothesis associated with vaginal birth. Okay, great. So th this that's a, a really nice summary of what I think was, in some ways, a, a reasonably straightforward analysis. I do think there are two things that I wanted to to follow up on right away, which is that you you pointed out that this is just a massive study. You didn't report the the confidence intervals and the size of the effects, which I think it bears noting only because they're 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 so tiny. So there was a, a hazard ratio of 1.1, that's where you got the 10% increase, with a 95% confidence interval from 1.09 to 1.12. These are really, really precise confidence intervals. And when you have small estimates like this, small you know, associations or effects, depending on what we think they are, you're going to need a lot of precision to be able to really say with, with any confidence what's going on. And then the second thing that I think is worth pointing out is that this was, the outcome in this case was infection-related hospitalization. So this is not just your sort of, sort of typical, you know, a, a minor infection. This is something that that would rise to the level of requiring hospitalization. I personally was surprised that 20% of, of kids in the study had a had a hospital infection diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say hospitalization, hospital diagnosis. But I, I, I was I was surprised that it was so high. Me too. Okay. Chris, what's what's your what was your take on the study? Well, a, a couple things. The first is when I, you know, before I, I, I read the paper, my first sort of reaction was, okay, we're going to control for, you know, obvious macro demographic factors, and that's going to leave a lot of hidden confounding. But they they actually attacked that problem in kind of a direct and clever way using this this uh, approach called the E-statistic, which I, I was not familiar with. But, but is, The E-value, yeah. But yeah, the E-value, which I figured was going to make your eyes twinkle because it seems so similar in some ways to quantitative bias analysis. Exactly. And here's quantitative hidden confounding analysis. And I thought that, yep. was, that was clever. And also it kind of gave you a, a sense of the magnitude that you would need to sort of nullify the association through some hidden confounding. So I thought that was that was kind of a clever, and I hope you come back and talk about it more. Actually, I will. the The second one is that you know every time we see one of these mega studies, you know the first thing I want to remind all our listeners to is that you know just because we have a ginormous sample size does not get rid of bias. So yep. we can have the wrong number with astonishing precision. So just like you know recall precisely the wrong, precisely wrong, right? That that. That sample size does not correct for bias. Sample size does not correct for bias. And so we still have that problem. And that that mistake is made all the time. But the third thing was this like, you know, after I was thinking about the results and looking at sort of the, the breakdown of the data, and particularly the association between the age of the child and the the infections, I became mm -hmm. a lot more interested in this and, and started to think 
you know, that perhaps this is true, and then to start pondering mechanism. And, and Jess had, had queued this up by talking about the microbiome, which is a, a field that I'm also very interested in, that I, I don't study the vaginal microbiome, but I do study the, the, the respiratory microbiome. And we have recently uh, submitted a paper where we looked at the respiratory microbiome in a longitudinal analysis, where we sampled kids' noses every two weeks from birth through three months. And in that cohort, there were 10 kids or so who went on in, to get pneumonia. And so we looked at their respiratory microbiomes in the visits leading up to the pneumonia event. And the kids who went on to get pneumonia had a very different microbiome profile from the kids who didn't get pneumonia. So, so I, I do believe that there is, there is, you know, there's something to this hypothesis, whether it's a, a you know, a causal relationship or whether it's an epiphenomenon, I don't know. Maybe it's actually a bit of both. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, putting that aside, the, the thing that struck me the most was this sort of interesting risk profile as a function of age. And, and I'll summarize this in a very broad way, which is that there's, a, there's an increased risk relative to vaginal deliveries of children who are delivered by either C-section, elective or emergency C-section, that is higher after birth within the first one to two months, then gets higher still in months four to six, and then gradually decreases through the, the remainder of the, of the age spectrum all the way out through five years. And th- that's interesting to, to me because it, it has a very similar profile to what we see with maternal antibody, where you have passive immunity dominating at the beginning, and then you have active Im- immunity emerging late. And so while I was thinking that, you know, perhaps this is, you know, due you know, to some degree, or maybe a larger degree due to microbiome exposure, it could also be a function of the fact that when you have an elective C-section, you deliver babies on average earlier than when you have mm-hmm. an emergency C-section mm-hmm. or vaginal delivery. And that's obvious when you think about it, because you, you would never schedule a C-section to be later than, you do, than your scheduled due date. And so you, by definition, have to be biased in the other direction. You know, it, it, it can't really happen otherwise. Whereas with an emergency C-section, that's not true, right? Emergency C-sections are usually done often done because things are going bad during labor and delivery. And so mm-hmm. the, the, the gestational age of those children is, is very similar on average to what you would see with the vaginal delivery. In fact, their data sustain that, that observation very clearly, that when you looked at the elective C-sections, they are systematically you know, two weeks older than the vaginal deliveries and the emergency C-section babies. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that would deprive the children of one to two weeks of, of antibody transfer over the placenta, which would then conform to that curve quite nicely. And so I, I started thinking, in fact, you know, could, there be, could there be another force here that we haven't really thought about because we're, you know, we're so focused on the microbiome, you know, which I, I still think could be part of this, except that I don't understand why the microbiomic profile would rise and then fall in that way. I would have just thought that the further you get away from the delivery, the less the effect of the maternal microbiome would be, that it wouldn't go up and then down. It would just go down gradually. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I know I thought that was really intriguing and it made me think about these data in a, in a, in a very different way. Yep. And I, I think there is a lot going on there. And I, I do, you know, have similar reactions. But you know, when we, these are these are small effect sizes. I mean, we're talking about 10%. And, you know, as you mentioned, there's there's clearly the potential for some confounding here. And when you talk about small effect sizes, it doesn't take much to, you know, much confounding to to go from a, a hazard ratio of 1.1 to a hazard ratio of one. So it's, it's you know, you're in a, a dicey area. Jess, what, what was your reaction reading this study? What I had trouble figuring out was why there would be a difference between elective and emergency C-section 
if we were coming from a microbiome hypothesis, hypothetically, the child would still, either way, would lack the exposure to the mom's vaginal microbiome. Oh, but that's not that's not quite true, because oftentimes elective C, uh, emergency C-sections are done after the membranes have ruptured. It and could so there be, is right. So, so, so maybe there could be in certain circumstances, and maybe, you know, so it, it could still fulfill that hypothesis depending on when the emergency happened, kind of when that emergency was recognized. So it could still, sorry, you may, uh, Matt, you're waving your finger. Well, it, I just want to jump in here. <laughs> I mean, are we making too much, though, of the difference? Because we're really right. talking about the uh, increase in respiratory or, or, or infections for those who had elective C-sections was 1.13, so a 13% increase. And amongst those who had emergency C-sections, it was 1.09, so a 9% increase, given that you know, there's the potential for some confounding. And interestingly enough, I would assume that the confounding structures should be different for the, the forces of, of emergency C-sections versus elective C-sections. So I'm not sure that, that there really is any distinguishable difference here. It's interesting to think about it that way. I mean, I think one of the things that I think, yes, there certainly could be differences between, and there obviously are women who would elect to, would elect to have a C-section versus a mom who would end up having a C-section after a difficult labor, for example. I think one of the, the other things that jumped out to me about this hypothesized causal pathway is the role of breastfeeding, which they didn't have data on in this study, because obviously it's not part of the medical record. Um, but that's one of the things, I mean, for most people, but that's one of the things as well that plays into the infant's microbiome. And there is evidence as well that that is complicated by C-section delivery at times, um, especially if the infant is taken away from the mom after birth, because if it is an emergency and the baby needs medical care, for example, and, and so I was, there were a few things that I would have loved to have had information mm -hmm, on. Mm -hmm. Breastfeeding was one of them, which has a clear engagement with the infant's microbiome. And the second thing was the use of prophylactic antibiotics during vaginal birth because of group, group B strep, which mm -hmm. at least in the United States is very common as about, you know, 30% of women test positive for group B strep prior to labor. And so are given antibiotics during a vaginal delivery with the goal of knocking out segments of the vaginal microbiota to protect the baby. Mm -hmm. And so there was no information on that as well. And that would have been interesting. I think that, that that would have certainly been interesting because that's another sort of intervention that affects the baby's engagement with the mom's microbiome. Totally agree. I think those are those are great points. It isn't clear to me whether those would be moderator modifiers of the potential effect. The right. group B strep approach antibiotics presumably would be a modifier, and breastfeeding, of course, happens after birth, so that's a potential mediator. So you know, it isn't clear exactly what we're what we're talking about when we when we think about these potential differences as to whether they are confounders or mediators. Okay, so so the main thing that I want to talk about, and I do if we have time, want to come back to this e-value thing, but but the the bigger thing that I want to talk about is, and let me start off by saying I like this study. I thought it was I thought it was a good study overall. So so here any any critique that I provide as uh, in the context of I thought this was a was a pretty good study. But more of a critique of the field in general. But to me, this study felt to me like it suffered from one of the problems that I think we have. We talked about it before as epidemiologists, that we have access to data and we do analyses 
with the idea of comparing different groups before we actually think through what the question is. Because the questions here, if we want to provide useful information to providers, to to women making the decision about whether or not to have an elective C-section, they are different questions, right? The the question of whether or not to have an elective C-section is there is, you are pregnant, and at some point you make the decision to have the elective C-section or not. The emergency C-section, on the other hand, is something that happens uh, as a function of circumstances that are occurring. So the information that we get here is useful in thinking about elective C-section in that we might think we want to reduce the number of elective C-sections that we're doing if we think this is a big enough potential harm. Whereas with emergency C-sections, presumably the the intervention isn't, well, we won't do the emergency C-section. It's providing us information on those differences post-birth that we might want to try to intervene post-birth on. And those are two very different kinds of questions, right? If you think about it from the standpoint of a randomized trial, you could do the randomized trial of have an elective C-section or not. You might not find that ethical, but you could do it. Whereas with the emergency C-section, you can't do that as a randomized trial. You have to react to the situation. And so you're getting very different types of information. And I think sometimes we don't think enough about how we're going to use the information so that we design questions that are focused on the idea of getting information that will inform a useful decision. And that's, you know, my main critique of this. Again, I thought it was a a good study, but I just thought the the questions needed some some tweaking in in terms of how you'd interpret it. No, no, no response. Okay. (laughs) I guess I have to say I agree with you, Matt. (laughs) All right. That seems very well reasoned. Yeah, no, I, I agree too. I mean, I think as a you know, as a a woman who's had three babies, I think it's certainly interesting to think about, you know, what is if you are a mom and say you're reading the scientific literature or you're a physician, kind of what are the elements that you would want to use to make a decision, for example, to have an elective C-section or to advise your patient to have an elective C-section, for example. And it's interesting. I mean, I think most of the things that people think about are short term, Kind of, am I going to, what's my recovery going to be like? Or am I going to not be able to bond with the baby immediately after birth? Or, you know, things, you know, kind of, am I going to be able to get around the house if I have an elective C-section? You know, kind of, who's going to be able to be there? Who's not going to be able to, you know, those those kind of short-term logistics. And so to the extent that this plays for women and their physicians, to the extent that you kind of buy the findings, as longer-term consequences of C-section birth, that's something certainly interesting that as, you know, a woman, we would can, we would probably want to think about and physicians might want to think about in recommending this, you know, this procedure or, or thinking that it's something that you, that you want. I think you're right that the emergency C-sections are in a different bucket and, and there's a, there's, there's, there, you know, that's kind of an outcome that pro- probably most people don't desire. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, that's kind of a different, a different group and different decision-making and different thoughts that go into that sort of situation. Can, can I, you know, just canvas the two of you for your thoughts about, about the persistence of the effect? So, you know, if this was due to the microbiome where, you know, the child is exposed to a, 
significantly different set of, of the microbes uh, when they have an elective C-surgeon versus when they have a, a vaginal delivery, which is basically, you know, the child is going to be contaminated by, you know, the contents of the mother's vaginal tract and also the gastrointestinal tract. Whereas the, the babies who come out from an elective C-section are, are not going to see any of that. So that effect should be very important early on. But I would think that that it would fade quickly because, you know, for example, to look at, at, at our own data where we have these, you know, these two-week slice, you know, sort of snapshots of, of the microbiome over time, the, the change in the composition of, of the nasopharyngeal microbiome of these babies is, is extremely dynamic. You know, mm -hmm. it literally changes week by week by week by week. And it's really impressive to see how it does, but it does it in a very stereotypical way where early on, the, you know, the, the microbes that you see are really dominated by skin flora and gastrointestinal flora, which is exactly what you would anticipate. But by week six or 12 or 14, you're looking at pathogens that are, are now mostly respiratory paths, sort of typical respiratory pathogens that are not part of the gastrointestinal tract. And so I, you know, I, I look at those data and then I say, well, gosh, how do we then explain an increased risk of, of respiratory or gastrointestinal infections five years later? I don't, I don't mm -hmm. quite understand that. And of course, the maternal antibody hypothesis falls apart completely for the same reason, because maternal antibodies last for maybe six months, 12 months at the outset. And so we, we can't, point to either of those as having a major effect so many years later. So what else could be going on here that, that, that helps us understand this? Confounding? I mean, you know, right. again... So are we still is, stuck with confounding and bias here as, as major, maybe a major factor in this analysis? It is possible. I mean, it, I, so we, we didn't talk about the, the E-value, but but they, they, they use the E-value here. E-value, you could put it in the category of a form of quantitative bias analysis, where essentially what you're doing is trying to quantify the impact of a potential source of bias. In the case of the E-value, what it does is it says, how strong would a potential confounder have to be in order to get back to the null? And the problem with the E-value is it makes some really absurd Assumptions. It's sort of the most extreme case, but leave that aside. You know, to explain away a risk ratio of or, or hazard ratio of 1.1, you don't really need a particularly strong confounder. I mean, it would have been nicer to see an actual confounder proposed and analyzed to see do you get back to the null using something that we actually think is a, a plausible confounder. But you know, again, I I I put forward two different hypotheses. One is that this is causal. And number two, that this is we are looking at the residual effects of confounding. What I take comfort in, I suppose, is that at any rate, whether it's hypothesis A or hypothesis B, it's 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 a small effect. Now, 10% increased risk is large on a population level, but for an individual, a 10% increased risk you know, isn't, isn't that large. And so, except you know, that they said that there was a 21% risk of, of hospitalization for infections at any time in that five-year period. So actually it's a pretty common yeah. outcome in this case. Yeah, yeah. Fair, you enough. Know? Fair enough. And you'd, okay, and so you'd assume that there'd be, you know, even a stronger association with not hospitalized infections. And I'm not sure that that has actually, I feel like there hasn't, and I'm not that familiar, I'm sure others know more, but, you know, research that's looking at just maternal reports of illness in children. And I feel like that has not borne a difference between cesarean section and vaginal birth. Um, mm. And so we would expect to see an even stronger response among kids who are experiencing infection. If hospitalization is maybe the most extreme outcome that you would expect to see a range of severity. And I'm not sure that, that we do in the literature. 
Yeah. I mean, to me here, uh, I just want to go back to the, the bias analysis point. Here is a, this is a really good study for bias analysis. The reason being that the confidence interval is so tiny that as Chris pointed out at the beginning, the only remaining source of potential error is systematic error. And when there is no random error, you want to assess the impact of that of that residual systematic error. And you can do that with these, these quantitative bias analysis methods. You know, so I, I don't know where I come down, but again, I, 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 as I said to you, I thought this was a good study largely because I think we end up in a place where I do think they did the best they could. I don't know what the right answer is, but I think we're sort of in the ballpark of possibly a small effect, possibly none. And, you know, we, more research could potentially elucidate that. Any, any mm-hmm. last thoughts anyone wants to have before we move on? I had one one last thought that there has been research led by this researcher I was mentioning earlier at Rutgers where they take babies who were born by C-section and then smear them with the mom's vaginal microbiota. They kind of they they take samples from the mom's vaginal tract and then smear the baby after the C-section to try to simulate that exposure. And so I think I don't and I don't know the results of all the but I mean there've been kind of experimental studies that do that. And so that would at least shed some light on whether that process actually colonizes the babies intestinal tract or not, if it's the actual physical experience of being born by C-section or if it potentially could be something else. Okay, Chris is Chris is making a face that suggests he's skeptical, but I'm curious why, because of course we 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 did the, the poop pill study where isn't this what they essentially do with the you know the 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 gut microbiome? They transfer it from one person to another. So I'm, I I why? agree it's possible. It's all possible, right? But but we also you know, if you recall, in that in that study of the poop pill, you know, there were there you know, we we acknowledged that it wasn't just the micro the microbes in the in the pill, but there are all these other factors in there as well. You know, the, the soluble antibodies, the mannose binding lectins, all these other things that are antimicrobial or, or microbial composition modifying that may be important as well. It's not just the bugs; that there's yep. a whole bunch of stuff in there. So, yep. uh, you know, as, which I suppose is also present in the in the smear from the the mother's <laughs> vaginal tract. But I, I I know it just to me it seems like I guess I'm making uh, you know surprised faces here because it it to to me, it feels like that is a huge leap forward in terms of assuming that this is all causal. And, sure. and I, I, I think I, I know that one, that feels a little premature to me. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on. But before we do, the last thing I want to say is they, they, they do note in here that potential confounders were identified with directed acyclic graphs, otherwise known as causal diagrams, which I'm a huge fan of. But then unless I missed it, they don't actually show us the causal diagram, which I found a little bit disappointing. Anyway, moving on. So let's talk about our second segment. We want to talk about what is public health, who should be critiquing public health in a pandemic, and who should be telling us how well we have and haven't done. And this was the reason for this discussion. I wanted to talk about this because Nate Silver from 538 Politics, big name in trying to predict who's going to win the the U.S. elections, has been very critical of public health in some of his recent tweets. And I'm going to read you some of these tweets. So he says, I'm sorry to be a broken record, but it is completely indefensible that the ACIP presents data like this showing that age is a far bigger risk factor for dying of COVID than pre-existing conditions and yet puts them on the same tier for vaccination prioritization. So he's looking at some data on you know, risk of, of severe COVID illness and death and in interpreting it and then trying to critique the, the guidelines for who should get the vaccine first. Then he says, 
uh, age needs to be a higher priority than existing preconditions in vaccine rollout plans, or a lot of people are going to die unnecessarily. It's really that simple. Okay, he says that sample, but I think he means that simple. Then he said it's also <laughs> pretty embarrassing for the public health profession that it's largely outsiders like me and he names two other people who are actually looking at the scientific evidence and pointing out these obvious problems and that there are, aren't more critiques from within. He then goes on to say when there was severe backlash, he says, quoting somebody else who was critiquing him, I know a fair bit about COVID. I spent a fairly large part of my life reading research about COVID. I assume he means my life over the past year because COVID didn't <laughs> exist prior to this year. And I'm a good, and he says, and I'm a good reader. It's part of my job. I'm not doing any epidemiology on my own. The problem is the guidelines, recommendations on vaccine don't match the research. And he goes on from there. I'll stop there. But what my immediate reaction to this was, was, first of all, there is more to it than just the the looking at the, the simple data to be able to critique that data well. I sort of had an immediate defensiveness for public health, but then I sort of backed off that and said, okay, I, I'm critical of, of some parts of public health. But I want to read you the last part where he says, where is it, that he, that he, he makes a distinction between public health and science, he says, and the record of public health community over the course of the pandemic, as opposed to the actual science, parentheses, amazing, exclamation point, has been pretty poor <laughs> at almost every juncture. I bite my tongue a lot, but there have been many, many mistakes. So I throw it to you guys. Does he have a point here? Or, like, do you really need a... a good amount of training in epidemiology to be real, able to really look at this data and make a decision. I, I, leaving aside the other issue, which we can come back to, which is, has public health actually been critical of itself, which I think it, it has been. But let's just start there. You know, hmm. do you, I mean, is it is it fair game for someone like Nate Silver to just look at the data and then say, we've all done a, a pretty crappy job? Uh, yeah, I think so. Public health is complicated, but it isn't rocket science. And I think it's it's fu not fundamentally all that different from, from uh, you know, capturing data in political polls. In fact, I, I was struck during the last election season at how similar public health is to trying to prognosticate elections based on poll data. You know, the kinds of issues that, that he deals with in terms of sample size and precision and selection bias are identical to what we deal with all the time in, in, in public health. So I felt like that the, the two fields are pretty analogous. I will wait, wait, wait. Hard. Sorry, can be I be a little back provocative and just I will I'll be. I'll, let me just finish. I was going to say a little bit provocative to poor Nate Silver in pointing out that a couple of his models appear to have been wrong at the last election. Mm. Um, mm. But you know, we've all been there, so you know it is what it is. The data are imperfect, and we make our best guesses based on them. So, yeah, I think he would say that his models were quite good. The data that went into those models, which he doesn't generate were the problem. But anyway, that would be being overly generous. But I want to push back a little bit on what you just said there, Chris, about these two being the same, because I, I, I actually don't think they are the same for a number of reasons. Start off with the fact, the very obvious fact, that the consequences to Nate Silver of getting his model wrong is he presumably doesn't become the expert that people look to in the next election, and he potentially loses some money or This or is our opportunity, prestige. man. <laughs> or whatever it is, versus if we get it wrong in public health in a crisis, there people die, right? So these 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 decisions and how you go about 
putting out information about them and modeling them, you know, the, the, the stakes are a lot higher. But second of all, I think they're different in that what Nate Silver is trying to do is predict an outcome. We are not trying to predict an outcome. We are trying to assess cause and effect. And the ways that you go about predicting something versus the ways that you go about assessing causal relationships are very different. You don't have to deal with confounding when you want to predict something. You do have to deal with selection bias. That's still true. But you don't have to deal with some of the, the fundamental problems that we deal with in causation. And so I, I don't know that I think that it really is the same skill set such that you could just sort of show up and say, I know what's going on here. Yes, well, what, 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 oh. well, let, me, let me challenge you on that, because don't you think that that the decision to you know accept a phone call or to own a, a landline, which would allow you to be polled, is is probably confounded with your political views? Don't you think that that is an, actually a very good example of confounding? No, I don't think that's confounding. Confounding only only occurs if we want to know the effects of something. When when we're trying to predict the winner of a of a presidential election, you're talking about what you're you're getting at there is potential for selection bias. I right? guess that the you're people right. I'm who sorry, get selected right. into the study may be fundamentally different from the electorate. That's that's a real problem that we deal with and they deal with. I agree. Whereas confounding is different. Trying to say what the fundamental cause is of higher rates of mortality from COVID is a causal question that deals with confounding that polling does not deal with. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I have a question. I have thoughts along a few different lines. I think the first is, is, you know, having to do with polling and data quality. And mm -hmm. I think to the extent as epidemiologists or biostatisticians or people who are analyzing medical data, we are all very aware that you don't want to start jumping in to analyze your data and draw conclusions if you question the quality of the data. That's the mm -hmm. very first step is to make sure you have high quality data. And so, so to claim after the fact that your, your calculations were correct, I mean, I think I, I th you know, but the data was bad. I think you need to know the quality of your data before you jump in and start running models and calculations. And so I do think that in, especially, you know, the, the 2016 election and even, even in 2020, I think there were some clear issues with data quality that someone from the epi side would say, wait, before you jump in and run all these algorithms, you know, are you sure that you have a good sample that's really reflective of the, the population that you're trying to make inferences to? Can I add something sorry. to that? Can I, because, yeah. and I, I realize this is probably me just running my mouth here, but if, if Nate Silver's model didn't exist, it wouldn't make any difference to the, to the election, right? Yeah. I mean, you can, we don't need that information. We want that information. We want to know who's going to win the election. We want a prediction. But, you know, at the end of the day, what difference does it make? Whereas when it comes to, to COVID decisions, we have to make decisions. And so we have to do it with the best available information that we have. We don't have a choice. Whereas... He does have a choice. They don't have to do that. And I think his models also, you know, they, they led to spending his and, you know, not just his, but other people's too, kind of led to, you know, to money being spent in areas where the races were in the end, not very competitive, where had those models not been run that those resources could have maybe been used more effectively. But I think, you know, to the larger question of, I also have noted this 
separation now between public health and science and medicine. The idea that public health, you know, was this huge failure through the pandemic and everything that happened is the fault of like, quote unquote, public health. Whereas, you know, the laboratory scientists, you know, they developed a vaccine and the doctors and then the nurses and the frontline medical professionals, like they're saving lives and, and, you know, public health were just screwing up like, you know, at each at each turn. And it's been kind of sad and fascinating to me that that seems that that kind of might be the the song at the end of the pandemic that that you know that certain segments in the scientific community rose to face the challenge and that public health is fundamentally not science mm-hmm. and and i think that you know they're obviously public health has failed public health in that broad sure. definition has has failed at certain moments yeah. during the pandemic, specifically as it relates to messaging and as it relates to understanding economic reality of potential interventions. I think some of the economic side effects from government shutdowns hit a lot of public health professionals by surprise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that was that was maybe not part of the plan in the same way. And then the kind of public health and negative, you know, sequelae that that come from, you know, from economic loss, I think also was not as expected as it as it could have been. Yeah. So so I think these are are really important points. And I do not want to minimize the places where public health failed. I mean, masks is an obvious one. Masks, the messaging on masks in the beginning of the pandemic was not good. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we should own up to that and we should learn from it. The The stakes were really high. You know, I think we got into those mistakes for, for well-intentioned reasons, but we, we made mistakes and, and I don't want to, I don't want to run away from that. But I'm also unclear on why it is that science was great. I mean, science seems to me has, yes, we had a vaccine in record time. That is amazing. But other aspects of of the science actually haven't been so good. And so this gets to the question of what is science versus what is public health? Where do the modelers fit into this? I mean, if you look at the IHME model, the IHME model has been terribly wrong at times. Is that science? Is that public health? Is that none of the above? Where does that fit in? Right. I mean, the models, a lot of them have been terrible. Right. And I know how hard it is to generate those models and, you know, all the data sources that go into them. And, you know, it's interesting. I feel like as as scientists, I think, you know, as epidemiologists, I, I, I think of us as scientists, you know, we we are always cautious in drawing large term conclusions from our research and I think that, you know, whereas sometimes, you know, there's the, you know, the the incentive just in this paper we were just talking about with cesarean section, like there's the incentive to kind of draw this big causal relationship from research that we do. And, and, you know, I think we're cautious about doing that on the basis of our training. And I feel like that plays in here a little bit with public health, where some of us are less cautious than others. And so, like, how do you interpret when decisions need to be made, you know, and I feel like throughout the pandemic, I've mentioned before, I'm working with this amazing group and we're doing some work with the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. And they were just telling us last week, like decisions have to be made. We don't always have data, but you have to make decisions. And like, obviously we're not used to operating in that sphere. 
-hmm. You know, we're used to kind of hedging our conclusions sometimes and saying, well, maybe it's residual confounding or maybe there were variables we didn't collect. Or, and so I think there were, were you know, I'm a, there, there were challenges. I acknowledge it. I, I, I will just add to that by noting that, you know, there was this, this big discussion in the last week or two about whether we should be giving you know, the, the maximum number of people, a dose of the COVID vaccine or holding back the second dose to make sure that everybody completes their two dose series. And, and, and I have been on the side of saying we should vaccinate as many people as possible, which put me at odds with, you know, people like Tony Fauci, who's way smarter than me, and Paul Offit, who also disagrees with me. But on the other hand, Scott Gottlieb, former head of the FDA, mm -hmm. who is also a pretty smart guy, agrees with me. And so does the, uni yep. you know, the British you know version of the CDC who made that decision. Mm -hmm. And as mm -hmm. it turns out, just a couple of days ago, so does Joe Biden's incoming administration, because that looks mm -hmm. like that's what we're going to do. So, you know, there, there are, you know, many opportunities here for, for you know, well-intentioned, well-reasoned, well-educated people to look at the same data and come up with different policy decisions based on their, their perception of, of, you know, you know, probable competing risk, acknowledging that all of these things are unquantified at this point. And throughout the whole pandemic, that's the basic problem we've had is that, like you say, Jess, we have to make decisions based on imperfect data. And, you know, 12 months ago, there wasn't a soul on the planet who was an expert on COVID-19. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, because the, the disease was brand new and nobody could pretend that they knew better than anyone else other than based on first principles, you know, and first principles are often what we have. And I and I, I, I wanted to sort of, you know, Finish that with a sort of an amusing anecdote. This is from a, a lecture I used to give many times in the in a GH seven hundred two, by the way, Matt. But it's it's a quote from the Book of Daniel from the Old Testament, one colon eleven through sixteen. For those who want to look it up, and the quote is: Then Daniel said to the steward, "Quote: Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let your appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's rich food be observed by you. And according to what you see, deal with your servants." So he hearkened them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's rich food. So the stewards took away their rich food and the wine they were given to drink and gave them vegetables, end quote. <laughs> so that is a 2,000-year-old a non-randomized trial <laughs> quoted in the Bible uh, with yep. no sample size. <laughs> but but a were 10 they born by C-section? Right? A 10-day intervention and a very subjective outcome. But nonetheless, they were not public health experts either, and yet they were doing health, public health experiments as old as, you know, 2,000 years ago, clearly. So, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, I still come down on the side of, I don't think that... You know, epidemiology and public health are just applied common sense. I mean, I've said it before. I, I think epidemiology is applied common sense up until the point at which it isn't. And that is where things go terribly wrong. And so, you know, I, I, I think it takes more than just I'm a I'm a smart person. I think it takes some in, you know, training. That's what we presumably do this for. I don't mean that to the exclusion of, you know, there are insights that people can generate from, you know, the general public is going to have their opinions and that's totally understandable. But I, I just don't want to make out that it's it's really all just simple and, and common sense. So there's the data and then there's the public health decision that comes from the data. And and sure. I, I think I would favor that the analysis of the data requires a, a, a specific skill set. But then the decision mm -hmm. as to what to do with the data, now that becomes a very different thing. And, sure. and I think what, what Nate Silver is so you know ticked off about is that he sees this big you know split between what the data show and what the public health decision was. And, and on that one, I, I'm, I'm a little bit more sympathetic to his argument. 
I, I am I am moderately sympathetic. I, I too. I mean, I don't. It's not that I think he's one hundred percent wrong. I I don't, and I, I just think this idea that he's the only one who's ever came up with this insight, and that it's really just as simple as just looking at the data. I mean, the data are actually quite complicated because there's overlap in the populations who have comorbidities and who have age. There's strong overlap, and so mm-hmm. you know, it's 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 just not that simple. As my only point. Mm-hmm. All right, let's let's move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. I'm gonna I'm gonna go first this time. So I for this one was interested in an article that I came across from Retraction Watch. So we've talked about Retraction Watch a number of times on this program. Retraction Watch looks at articles that get retracted. And this one was an interesting article though. It said Elsevier looking into quote very serious concerns. After student calls out journal for fleet of Star Trek articles. So I thought that one would interest Mm. you, Chris. So the story says an undergraduate from the UK has taken to task the editors of a purportedly scholarly journal for having published more than 100 papers by a Maltese researcher with a deep affinity for Star Trek. So the journal is the (laughs) is early human development. And there was this student at, at Oxford who is accusing the journal of publishing a large number of unprofessional articles by one particular author. The author himself is a pediatric cardiologist and apparently is also a big fan of Star Trek. So the author has written 113 papers in this particular journal, 57 as sole author. 19 of the 113 articles focus on various aspects of the TV series Star Trek. (laughs) They generally discuss a topic within the series that are relevant to the field of medicine, but the extent of this stops at discussing the portrayals of doctors, medical practices, medical technology in the series. Many of these articles were confusingly published in the category of best practices guidelines. <laughs> so the article goes on to basically say, you know, this is more more a critique of the journal than it is of the the author. I mean, the author has done nothing unethical. They've just simply written on a topic that is weird that it was published. And there are certainly signs that this is a, a predatory journal in that it is publishing very quickly without really much in the way of peer review. But I just thought it was particularly funny that this journal seems to be a purveyor of, of medical Star Trek articles, which I thought would be of interest to you, Chris. That is so awesome. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. Yep. All right, Chris, what do you got? Well, I, I want to talk about traffic a little bit. I, mm-hmm. over the weekend, took my son from, drove him from Boston to his, his school, his high school in North Carolina, which is a mm-hmm. 900 and change mile drive. And I had a lot of time to think about traffic patterns while I was on the road. But mm-hmm. I wanted to start with a, uh, with a quiz to the two of you. Ooh, I which like quizzes. To, to see if you can name all the states we went through, including Massachusetts and North Carolina. And I will give you a hint that there were nine of them. And then we took Route 84 okay. to Route 81. So we went quite okay, can I... quite a way west before we went south. Nine states? Yes, starting with Massachusetts. So, okay. Massachusetts. Yes. Connecticut. Yes. I, you didn't go through Rhode Island then. No. Uh, New York, New Jersey. Yes. No. You did not go through New Jersey, then Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Yes. yes. Okay, so you went through Pennsylvania. Um, then West Virginia, maybe? Um, not quite. There's, there's a sliver uh, of another state in the way. No? No? West Very Virginia, counterintuitive. Virginia. Uh, Delaware, Maryland? No, you wouldn't Maryland. have gone through those. Maryland. 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 A little piece of Maryland. And then, and then Virginia, North no. Carolina. No, not Virginia. 
After Maryland West Virginia. comes West Virginia. Then yeah, yeah, sorry, West Virginia. I don't so know. That's, Kentucky. That's six. West Virginia gets you to six. What's number seven? Don't know. Well, that's number yes. seven is Virginia. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So after Virginia is Kentucky? Almost. Tennessee? No. Tennessee. Yes. Tennessee. Tennessee. And, then, yeah. and then North Carolina. Mm. Yeah. Massachusetts. That feels like a really a really circuitous route. <laughs> it's a little bit of a roundabout way, but it's well, yeah. actually, it isn't. It's it's a straight shot. It's just that each of these states is kind of like mm. uh, looks like shingles on a on a roof. They're kind of interdigitating, and so you, you cut off the corners of a whole bunch of them as you go south. I can tell you, we wow. we drive to North Carolina. Uh, uh, we used to drive there a fair bit, and I've never gone through Tennessee, West Virginia, or Pennsylvania on those trips. Yeah, I, I was trying to you know to to avoid going down route 95 because i figured mm-hmm. it would be a it would be a, a, a terrible mess on a friday and i didn't want to go anywhere in new york city and i didn't want to go anywhere near baltimore or washington given all the ooh that's going on so i i decided to go south on 81 and once you you know once you go 200 miles or so west on 84 then it's a straight it's you know it's a diagonal shot straight down to because i was going to Asheville, north carolina which is the far mm-hmm. west part of north up carolina so sure. yeah up in the mountains and so actually the the proximity to, to tennessee is is very is very logical because you're right there so so So, the other things i wanted to talk about was this this great book i i read a couple years ago called traffic which is why mm -hmm. we drive the way we do by tom vanderbilt it's a terrific book that talks all about the sort of psychology of 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 driving and also the sort of the engineering of road construction and of cars and and it's filled with interesting stuff but one of the most fascinating ones is is sort of the the way that cars cohort on a highway so a cohort is what a whole bunch of cars sort of stack up behind each other, like what you see in the fast lane, where you get 10 cars in a row, all going 74 miles an hour spaced one car apart. That's a cohort. And, mm-hmm. and sort of the, the interesting implications of what that means in terms of accidents. Because mm-hmm. you would think that it's like, you know, the, the most likely culprit in a, in a multi-person accident, a multi-car pileup, would be that the first car does something dumb. But it's actually usually the second or third or fourth car that causes mm. the accidents. And it has to do with this concept of shared space, that the space you have to maneuver in is the space in front of you to the next car and the space behind you to the next car. And that when you're in the middle of the cohort, you're in, you're like very small changes in your behavior ripple down the the cohort and that's what usually causes these these accidents hmm. and i and i was sort of interested in that because i i, I you know i'm I, you know I'm, I'm one of those sort of old school drivers who thinks that if you're not passing someone you should not be in the passing lane and mm-hmm. and people do that all the time where they they drive up parallel to the guy in the slow lane and then they slow down and just sit there pacing mm-hmm. themselves using the car to their right and it drives me bonkers you know I hate that so much because it seems so selfish and yet this is I think part of human nature because they're not even really thinking about it we're all we've all fallen into this in fact he talks about it in this book this this thing called highway hypnosis where you just kind of like stop paying attention and, and sort of respond in an autonomic way, and you know the you know the, the behavior of paralleling the car in the, in the lane to your right is an example of that, where you're not even really thinking anymore. You're just using them to make the decision about how fast you're going to go by allowing them to set the speed. Mm-hmm. Yep. Anyway, it, it was a, it was 26 hours in total there and back. I was in Asheville for all of one hour before I turned around and came home again. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> So it was, it was, you know, six, six, six tanks what? of gas, or maybe it was eight. I don't remember. And uh, a lot of potato chips. So. 
Glad you're home. Did your son you're share your interest in the traffic patterns as you were going on? Or was he like, duh, this not is so stupid? He was, he was not engaged with this in the least. I, I, I kept trying to explain to him why it was such a problem, and he just rolled his eyes at me. It's yeah. like, okay, here's a future yep. parallel pacer in, it's in the making. <laughs> All right, Jess, what do you what got for us? What can you do? What can you do? So, so mine, I realize I have a trend now. I have like a niche in this amazing and amusing. I'm talking about animal studies. But I don't know. Oh, yeah. Those are the ones that kind of appeal to me, you know, studies on especially wildlife. Um, and then things that have to do with men and women and kind of parallels between wildlife and men and women. So here's, here's, here's one from a few months ago about lemurs. My 10-year-old daughter, if we're talking about our kids, she's obsessed with, uh, she's obsessed with all sorts of animals and went through like a sloth phase and a lemur phase. Now she's in an orca phase, but there was a period of time where she was deeply, deeply into lemurs. And Mm -hmm. so here's an, this was an article that was published in the journal Current Biology about, the title is Key Male Glandular Odorants Attracting Female Ring-Tailed Lemurs. And what they observed among these wild lemurs, I just thought it was kind of interesting. Um, and then they also have a, uh, a figure that they drew to kind of graphically depict how this is happening. They discovered that male lemurs secrete an aldehyde, two types or three types of aldehydes from their wrists. And then what they do is they what? wipe it on their tail <laughs> and then they wave their tail near the lady lemurs and then the aldehydes on their, you know, that's that's like the, the pheromone that attracts the female lemurs. And so it's secreted in the wrist, they wipe it on their tail and then they kind of wave their tail around and then the you know the females come come running over. And what was also interesting in addition to this figure which is just priced like of the male kind of like with his, you know, his tail and his wrist. And then it shows like the, it's, you know, it's not an actual picture. It's just a drawing and it shows like the aldehydes like wafting away from mm-hmm. his tail. And then a, a lady lemur who's like, you know, on the side. <laughs> That's um, so cool. And aldehydes also like are a highly toxic compound in my understanding. They're carcinogenic. And so this, you know, at least for humans, they're mm. toxic and they're carcinogenic. Doesn't mean they are for every animal, but it kind of gave this parallel to, you know, danger pheromone that, you know, this pheromone was was not altogether a wholesome product, but it had some danger to the, you know, oh. maybe that was why the maybe that was why the the lady lemurs were so were so drawn to it. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. But anyway, interesting. Like, very to me. cool. Like Brute 44. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Axe body spray. <laughs> All right. Well, that is the end of our program. If you get any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX. You can tweet me at, at PropMadFox or Chris at ID.Gill. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. Org. We want to thank Leslie Talali and Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast and Nick Guler for sound editing and taking control of our computers via Zoom. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you will download our next episode. 